0: Welcome to The Social Science of War, a podcast for land warfare scholars and practitioners. My name is Kyle Atwell. I'm an Army officer instructing international affairs at the Social Sciences Department at West Point, and today's episode is the second in a two-part series that explores land warfare in Europe and lessons from Russia's war in Ukraine. The first part of this series released two weeks ago and explores the strategic and political dynamics of the NATO alliance. Today's episode zooms in to examine the tactical and operational lessons the war in Ukraine can teach us about large-scale combat operations. The conversation starts with tactical observations from the current fight on topics such as mission command and synchronizing combined arms across dispersed tactical units. We then shift to discussing the theory behind conventional deterrence and how to shape U.S. force posture in Europe moving forward. Our three guests bring recent perspective from the tactical to strategic levels in Europe, and all three have conducted research and published about Russia's war in Ukraine. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges is a retired United States Army officer. His flag officer assignments included time as the commander of NATO's Allied Land Command, and then as commander of United States Army Europe from 2014 to 2017. Major Ryan Van Wee is a U.S. Army Infantry Officer and a former assistant professor here in the Social Sciences Department at West Point, where he published multiple articles on the war in Ukraine. He served as a company commander in Operation Atlantic Resolve in Europe in 2017 and is currently the 1-8 CAV Battalion Operations Officer deployed under Operation Europe Assure, Deter, and Reinforce Lithuania. Our third guest is Dr. Jack Watling, Senior Research Fellow for Land Warfare at the Royal United Services Institute. Jack works closely with the British military on preparing for the future of land warfare, and he has published and spoken publicly extensively on lessons learned from the Russian war in Ukraine. The Social Science of War podcast is brought to you by the Department of Social Sciences at West Point. Our goal is to bring together experienced soldiers and scholars to better understand land warfare, the army, and national security strategy. We hope you enjoy today's conversation with Ben, Ryan, and Jack. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, Major Ryan Van Wee, and Dr. Jack Watling. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of the Social Science of War podcast. I'm very excited to have you here today. Thank you
1: very much for the opportunity.
2: Thanks for having us, Kyle. Good to be with you.
0: Today, we're going to talk about the tactical and operational lessons from the war in Ukraine and their implications for the future of large-scale combat operations. This topic is an important in the context of strategic competition and concerns about potential great power wars with China and Russia for which the army is currently preparing. I'd like to start by asking what some of the most significant observations about large scale combat operations have been during the current war in Ukraine. I'll start with Ben and then open this up to the three of you for discussion.
1: Well, obviously, we've been reminded of the large-scale lethality of a modern battlefield. I mean, after 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, obviously, if an IED goes off into your vehicle, it's horrible. But when you see hundreds of people getting killed every day or mass employment of artillery, what it does to civilian buildings, a jolt back into the reality of what we're dealing with. And then the air and missile defense. I was so wrong when I was the commander of US Army Europe. I thought we had to worry about protecting airports and seaports. And clearly, people are now using precision weapons, multi-million dollar cruise missiles against apartment buildings. So our air and missile defense requirement is so much greater than what I had anticipated. Logistics, obviously, ammunition consumption is through the roof. We are not prepared for that. But finally, the importance of sergeants and uh, innovative young people, despite all the technology what we see is that units that are not properly disciplined and trained and don't practice good field craft, they're going to get destroyed.
2: And to build on what Ben said, Kyle, some findings that we looked at in a recent Brookings paper that I wrote with Colonel John Gillum, a few key trends that kind of apply at the tactical and operational level. So we looked at the importance of military readiness in that paper. And if you look at kind of Russia's problems across the board with structural readiness, operational readiness, mobilization readiness, That explains a lot of their early challenges and continued challenges, the struggles that the Russian armed forces have had, synchronizing combined arms across the different warfighting functions, inadequate force ratios, and the inability to mass at the decisive point for the various campaigns and the numerous axes of advance they came in on. And then the poor Russian command and control that kind of underpins all those problems were some of the several factors we looked at in that paper.
3: I think the biggest thing that stands out to me is that logistics officers in particular, but combat service support more widely, are increasingly needing to be directly involved and treated like combat officers. What do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, we are seeing battalion sized formations destroyed in a matter of days before they even enter contact because the ability to sense in depth and affect what you sense means that. While you are trying to move material along GLOCs, while you are trying to support your services, recover vehicles and repair them, all of that infrastructure behind the lines is now findable and targetable in real time. And so if you are not practicing tactical dispersion, concealment, deception, uh, and if those measures are not integrated, not just at the front, but all the way back through the echelon. Then I think in future large scale conflict, you will take unacceptable losses, which for professional militaries like the US military or many NATO militaries is not something that we can afford to absorb because we don't necessarily have the same mechanisms for regenerating second echelon of troops.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's an interesting tension here, or maybe I, I just found this surprising because in the lead up to war with conversations about anti-access aerial denial and long-range precision fires and the fact that essentially you know, dispersion would be key, I envision a different type of war, but it almost feels like we're almost trench warfare nonetheless on the front lines here. And I wonder if you could kind of discuss whether this is surprising the way the war is played out on the front lines versus how we're seeing this injection of long-range precision fires.
3: So I think what we're observing is that there is a huge theory practice gap in the Russian military, partly because of the losses they took early and training issues they've had. Partly it's about them not being able to scale certain capabilities, but essentially their kill chain is dysfunctional at operational depth. So there are targets there. The Russians can find them. They are not able to get through the data and strike them fast enough to reliably interdict or conduct deep fires. They are able to engage operational depth when they are targeting fixed infrastructure and other kind of hubs and command posts. But they have a real problem in that while they can find targets and while they have the capability to hit targets, their training and procedures do not enable them to execute quickly enough. Conversely, the Ukrainians can do that. And that is One of the fundamental reasons why the Russians are not able to build up momentum again, because they just can't get enough rounds forward to their guns.
1: That is a brilliant point. I was thinking about this the other day. Russia, with all their advantages, they have not destroyed a single train or convoy bringing equipment or ammunition from Poland into Ukraine. How could that be? I mean, that's day one of operational planning school is to interdict your opponent's lines of communication, their logistics. And so all of this new kit, all this ammunition that all of us are providing to Ukraine is not being interdicted. And I think it's exactly what Jack said. They they might be able to see it, but they don't have the ability, it appears, the Russians, to do dynamic targeting and then direct assets to hit literally moving targets. So they did destroy, I think, five different rail stations at some point early last year, But the Ukrainian rail network has enough resilience to be able to work around that, to redirect around that. So that, to me, has been a bit of a surprise, but it points to the the greater problem that they have. Fortunately, there is no joint culture. I don't think there's been a day of joint operations by the Russians. All the surfaces act independently. And of course, everybody listening knows it took the U.S. Congress to force us to become joint. And you have to practice. It's hard. It's not natural. And thankfully, the Russians They don't have that culture.
3: They're even struggling to combine activity between, say, the VDV, Wagner, and their conventional army ground force units. And so when they're unable to cohere or coordinate between different ground elements, the idea of coordinating between services is is a whole other thing. But I would just emphasize that lack of a tight kill chain is something that is fixable. The Russians might not be able to fix it while they're in contact. But I don't think we can sit back comfortably and assume that that link will not be in place the next time round. So it's very clear what the problem is, and we should train on the assumption that it's there. And if you start looking at the Russian capabilities with that link resolved, then there are some major implications for I think how we operate.
2: Yeah, and I think looking at some of the recent successes on small scale that Russian forces have had, there are indications of tactical reform and adaptation. The ability to synchronize fires with maneuver, the ability to synchronize sustainment with maneuver, the ability to ensure that you're postured to exploit and then follow through on that exploitation. I think those are indicators of Russian armed forces improving on earlier failings from the first year of this conflict.
0: There's a lot to pull apart here. I'd like to dig into one of the concepts, which is this concept of dispersion. Which is important. It was cited in the Army Chief of Staffs white paper on multi-domain operations that we would have to employ forces in dispersed manner, and just has been said that because you are you know essentially deploying troops in the battlefield, potentially in a comms denied area at the squad or platoon level, they also have to be talented. They have to be able to employ mission command. Have we actually seen the Ukrainians and Russians adapt to their formations and their employment of forces to take a kind of more dispersed approach, or has that not really played out yet?
1: Well, I'd like to hear what Ryan says about that. I mean, you're studying it firsthand, I'm sure. Yeah, I think from the Russian perspective, the Russian defense and depth that
2: we see being strengthened right now is an indicator of that dispersion, not being satisfied with that initial defensive line that we saw the Ukrainians took advantage of with kind of their devastating offensive success six months ago. The Russians have learned from that, and they're now doing deliberate engagement area development. Putting multiple battle positions, alternate battle positions, supplementary battle positions and that depth they're building is making it a lot harder for the Ukrainians to actually create the penetration and follow through on it.
3: I think one of the really important elements to appreciate is that when the war kicked off, Ukraine survived because its junior leaders were able to execute mission command. The Russians did a pretty good job of disrupting command and control networks early on in the conflict. And, you know, lots of Ukrainian troops didn't have orders, but they knew exactly what they were going to do with the problem in front of them. And that was critical. As you say, dispersion drives a need for that. And I would almost say that dispersion now is a good measure for who's winning. The force that is losing is the one that is having to concentrate. If you can shape your enemy to the point where they have to concentrate, then you can kill them a lot more efficiently than they will kill you. It kind of reverses some of our older thinking, which was that, you know, the side that is able to create surprise and concentrate is the one that is going to be able to break through and achieve success. So, you know, again, I think there are some pretty major implications for for how we train and fight.
1: So we changed our training model in U.S. Army Europe after the first year of working with Ukrainians in the Joint Multinational Training Group Ukraine, JMTGU, which was established in Yavariv. I think we started that around 2015. We are first using rotational units before it became sustainable with others, but we tried to help them create a training center. And as we talked to Ukrainian units that were rotating through there before they would go back to what then was called the ATO, the Anti-Terrorism Operation Zone, we realized, first of all, they were incredibly quick to learn new things. I mean, I've not seen soldiers from any country, including the U.S. or U.K., that are able to learn new technologies as fast as Ukrainians do. We saw that firsthand. And then as we listened to them and watched how they did things, it was a wake-up call for us that we needed to train our own units to be able to operate in an environment where the enemy had, if not air superiority, they certainly, the sky would be full of drones and that they would be able to pick up all of our signatures, whether it was visual, heat, Thermal or electromagnetic, that all of this could be detected. And so, what we did at Hohenfels, at the Joint Multinational Training Center in Hohenfels, Germany, for all of our own units, we gave the OP4 all of these capabilities long range precision strike, drones, the ability to, to detect signature. And so, as always happens, you know, Blue Four gets crushed at the training center until they learn how to deal with it. And dispersion was one of the most important things because of the lethality and the capabilities that the Op OP4 had, which was modeled after what we believe the Russian capabilities were. And every video I've seen for the past 13 months of Russian tanks being destroyed, they usually are jam-packed like a parking lot with others. And it makes it so much easier, obviously, to target when you've got that kind of cluster of tanks, either in a field or on a road or going through a village, obviously targeting that. So it dispersion, but also signature management. I mean, most of these things, Ray Charles could spot these. field craft, of course, that's what our training centers are for.
0: Ryan mentioned the importance of combined arms and the command and control that underpins it. And, you know, thinking about the importance of dispersion and yet at the same time, combined arms, it seems like these are kind of competing requirements because the more you disperse, the harder it is to coordinate, right? Especially if you're in a comms denied environment. So how do we address this tension between the need to disperse and yet the need to actually coordinate across a joint force, across different domains at the same time?
2: Well, going back to Ben's point about JMRC and all the different curveballs balls the op four there can throw at you, you know, that's that's what we reinforced our CTC rotations, you know, over the last decade or so as we've reoriented on decisive action and preparing for large-scale combat operations. But it's really complicated to practice the art of having a dispersed force then synchronizing all the different warfighting functions in order to set conditions to bring that force together at the decisive point where you're massing combat power to overwhelm the enemy's ability to kind of resist. And the art and practice of that is just, you know, you have to earn it through repetition and and having the ability to conduct that training at the battalion and brigade level, which is really unique. And I think something that the U.S. Army is supporting our European NATO allies with our presence here. I think what's quite interesting is that when you look at the capabilities that all elements of the
3: force are increasingly fielding, they are able to see and affect across each other's boundaries most of the time. And the ability to move through one another's positions as well is actually significantly increased when you have a more dispersed force. It's easier to echelon through. And so... On the one hand, yeah, dispersion is going to reduce your ability to synchronize activity in the traditional kind of planning cycle. But because you can achieve greater situational awareness within each unit, you need to teach mission command in a way that encourages what I I guess the US military at this point is calling convergence, right? The ability to support one another using your own judgment, not because you've been told to do it. Maintaining that situational awareness between units becomes a massive J6 challenge and I think that's a a critical force multiplier. The side that is able to maneuver in the electromagnetic spectrum to retain situational awareness will use its forces much more efficiently and in a more combined way. The biggest challenge that I see is that, on the one hand, as Ryan just highlighted, we need lots of training to do this well. On the other hand, almost no one in NATO has enough troops at the moment to be able to hold a front in terms of the number of troops you would need to actually just occupy the ground. And that means that in a major conflict, we would need to significantly increase the size of our forces, which means that you're actually dealing with units that don't have those sets and reps stacked behind them. And a real question, I think, for us is force generation, right? How do you make sure that you can teach new units that you generate the appropriate skill sets to be able to contribute to that fight?
1: I had a boss tell me one time, he said, three things saved the United States Army after Vietnam. You know, when we came out of Vietnam, we had had so many noncommissioned officers have been killed, officers were killed, and plus our morale. I mean, our whole sense of confidence. We're in bad shape in the mid 70s. And he said, three things saved us. Number one was the creation of the National Training Center, a place where you go, it's as close as they can make it to combat tough training where you train to the point of failure to find out where those things are. And then, of course, it's organized so that you're challenged all the time. And until you fix things, your life never gets better there in the box. And so it creates a great learning opportunity. As Jack just highlighted, this is very expensive. I mean, that was a gigantic investment by the Army, which now they've done at the JRTC and the JMRC. But the second thing that goes hand in hand with that was the, the decision, the cultural Institutional decision to adopt the AAR, the after action review, which seems kind of simple, but it's a whole philosophy of critical self reflection where people own their mistakes, starting with the commander. When you say, Okay, what happened? Why did it happen? How do you fix it? And the best units would have commanders that would stand up and say, Okay, maybe I didn't give real clear guidance or whatever. That was a critical institutional development for us because it does require some intellectual honesty as well. And then the third thing was the creation of a non-commissioned officer education system so that as NCOs went up higher levels of responsibility, they received additional training the way officers do to prepare you for that next level of responsibility. So three kind of things that helped us get back to being what we should be as United States Army. That doesn't exist on the Russian side. The idea of critical self-reflection or any commander at any level saying, oh, I guess I screwed this up. How do we fix it? Fortunately, I don't think they have that. They're not stupid, but they don't have that institutional thing that will help them adapt. I think the Ukrainians are closer to that Western sort of approach.
0: I'd like to touch on the topic of logistics that Jack brought up before. I think it's been pretty widely discussed in the media that there's a challenge on the supply side, given the volume of munitions used, which is kind of a strategic problem. But I'm curious about what Jack talked about, kind of the operational and tactical level implications of, you know, the ability to sense in depth and target behind enemy lines, logistic convoys. Can we just take a little bit more into what are the operational and tactical challenges to logistics in modern large-scale combat operations and how do we overcome them?
2: Well, I think one of the first challenges that the Russian Army is dealing with is how sustainment units are task organized in the Russian Army. And the Russian ground forces have suffered from systematic deficiencies with sustainment units at echelon. So basically, you know, if a U.S. combined arms battalion has a forward support company that's attached to it, the Russian equivalent, a battalion tactical group, has a platoon size element. And it's at echelon, that same downsizing by one echelon on the Russian side. So that's really hindered their ability to be effective and to ensure they can continue to support both offensive and defensive operations, which both are heavily reliant on the ability to sustain high rates of fuel consumption and ammunition consumption. Looking at the earlier discussion about dispersion, You have to find the right balance between putting your sustainment nodes too far back where the process of conducting that resupply is going to be not timely enough to get there when it's needed and to enable those maneuver forces or those fire forces to continue the fight. But you also can't put it too far forward where it's within range of enemy indirect fire or close air support that that could interdict and degrade or even destroy those logistics assets. So it's a careful balance, and it's dependent on terrain, it's dependent on enemy capabilities, and it's just something that's continually by phase of the operation in refinement.
3: I think one of the biggest questions that I have about how we solve some of these problems is how we leverage a huge growth in logistics management capability in the non-military sphere and bring that to the military. You know, if you think about a traditional divisional support area, that is a large concentrated location site, maybe a couple of sites, but there's a lot of stuff there and it's pretty easy to find. Why? Because for the most part, we're still doing things pretty mandrotically, lots of paper, lots of, you know, needing to separate different types of equipment into specified areas just to manage it. The reality is you can drop a whole load of shipping containers across a very, very wide area and you can put QR codes on them and you can, you know, prearrange what's in them and you can track in real time with your C2 tools exactly what's in all of those shipping containers. And then when you need to move a set forward, it's just a case of you know, traveling salesman problem. You can use very similar tools to Uber or you know, Amazon to pick up the right shipping container and move it forward. And so you can have pretty small packets of logistic vehicles going and getting the right thing from a dispersed location and moving it forward to a tactical position. The real challenge then for me, and this is what I meant about logistics officers needing to think in terms of being combat officers, is however dispersed you want to be, if you are reinforcing a unit and they are in a fix, their location is known and there are probably only one or two viable g that get to that unit. Most logistic vehicles are not going to be able to take, you know, routes that cross wet gaps, etc. And so if there are a limited number of options, how do you enable that last mile resupply so that they get through? And I think that becomes a combined arms problem, right? Because what you suddenly want to do is you want to extend the kill chain between enemy find and strike it may require an order to go out for the unit that's being reinforced to prioritize knocking down UAVs for a bit, which maybe it wasn't doing because it didn't want to reveal its assets. But it has to understand if it doesn't clear the airspace of those UAVs, those trucks aren't getting through and it's not getting any more ammo. And so that suddenly requires a, a much closer synchronization of movement between elements that I think culturally, traditionally, have been seen as, you know, J3 operations, warfighting officers, combat echelons give their intent and the loggies just are supposed to kind of make it happen. We can't really have that mindset anymore because you will end up in a pretty sticky position.
1: So I want to associate myself with the remarks of my two fellow panel members. I agree with everything I just heard. I would only add what I remember from the first day of my logistics class, when I was a major at Fort Leavenworth at what used to be called Command and General Staff College. And in fact, it was the only thing I remembered from the logistics portion is that anticipation is the number one imperative for logistics. And that always stuck with me because the operators will never think about stuff in time and the loggies will be running around trying to find enough fuel or ammunition or rations or trans and it's too late in the game. And so anticipating requirements would be a, a hallmark of a really good logistician. I think something that maybe Jack said it earlier, logisticians have to be soldiers also. I mean, you know, obviously uh, we're going to go after the enemy's rear area. They're going to come after ours. So it's just as important for a uh, transport company or a supply company to be skilled and disciplined in field craft and force protection as it is for an infantry unit or a tank unit. It's just as important, maybe even more so. That's going to have a gigantic signature. One of the concepts that we've always advocated is fix forward, moving maintenance capability as far forward as possible. Right now, because of our nation's policy that there's no boots on the ground in Ukraine, we're providing all kinds of equipment to the Ukrainians without the expertise to fix it. And so these different types of howitzers and trucks and other vehicles have to be drug all the way back to Poland or Slovakia or somewhere for maintenance this obviously is not the way to do things. So we're seeing the value or the necessity of fixing Ford, which again means that's why they put a big 50 cal on the M88 so that a tank recovery crew is able to defend themselves and why that vehicle is armored, by the way. We do not have enough engineers in the United States Army. I mean, nowhere close. The ability to build bridges, not just assault bridging, but sustainment bridges, the kind that are needed to make for lines of communication. We're nowhere close to having enough and there are dozens and dozens of rivers in Central and Eastern Europe, big rivers, that we would have to cross because you'd have to assume that the civilian infrastructure is going to be destroyed or it's going to be packed with civilian traffic. And then finally, Sakir General Cavoli recently said that precision can defeat mass if it has enough time. And so I started thinking about that. What are we talking about? The only advantage the Russians have right now is mass infantry. And the fact that they don't care how many of them get killed, that they just would keep pushing that. So for mass infantry to be effective, though, requires mass artillery. And for mass artillery to be effective, it requires headquarters, ammunition, and transportation. So with long-range precision weapons that can blind enemy's mass artillery and infantry by knocking out headquarters, the Russian artillery delivery system is basically train goes as far as it can, trucks go as far as they can, and they dump it on the side of the road. So being able to find those clusters of artillery ammunition, again, something like a a GMLRS or a TACAMS small diameter bombs that can range that with precision. And then, of course, the transportation network, the bridges, trucks. The Russians have lost way over a thousand trucks already. That's how we use precision to defeat their mass
3: again i think this reinforces the point about needing to get very creative in our concepts when it comes to that rear area activity because just to take one example using commercial systems so this is not using nation state capable assets i can get visual and synthetic aperture radar imagery of anywhere on earth with 20 minutes of latency it'll cost me a bit of money but that's all and so if you want to build that support bridge to be able to move a reliable stream of containers forward to kind of keep the momentum of your operations going, that is a fixed piece of infrastructure that's going to take a certain number of days to build. And as I say, if I can cue on a synthetic aperture radar satellite and get a strip along the river, which is pretty easy to do, and I can do a couple of passes a day, I'm going to see it and it's not moving anywhere. And so that becomes an immediate target for cruise missiles, which if you don't have the defenses and as has been demonstrated pretty extensively in Ukraine. If you do have the defenses, that can be intercepted. But if you haven't planned to protect that asset, then it will be destroyed. And so that suddenly, as as General Ben was saying, creates a huge demand for missile defense, which is not what we have historically anticipated. And we can't achieve that with our traditional means of missile defense because it's too expensive, right, to have Patriot batteries covering every single one of these targets which means that we need to get much better at that cross-domain cooperation so that we can cue on shorter-ranged assets to be in the right place to be able to intercept those kinds of threats.
0: So we've talked about a lot of the challenges that we've observed the Russians having to include the importance of synchronizing combined arms across dispersed tactical units. That command and control essentially underpins everything. The challenges, the unique challenges of operational and tactical level logistics and the need for a complete kill chain This naturally leads to the question of would we anticipate the U.S. would have a lot of these same challenges or are we better organized and prepared? And also going one level higher than that, Ryan has written a lot about, you know, some of the unique challenges the United States would face in a large scale combat operations environment in Europe is that we would be doing it alongside allies, which adds additional synchronization challenges. So I'll I'll direct that at Ryan first. How do we look on our ability to overcome some of these challenges and what would be the impact of fighting alongside allies as far as our ability to synchronize?
2: Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, I think this gets back to a point that Ben and Jack both made earlier, and that's some of the qualitative differences between the U.S. Army and what we're seeing in the Russian Army and our NCO Corps mission command orders, discipline initiative, and the ability to kind of execute using commander's intent as the plan changes. I think those are all qualitative differences that you know the U.S. Army enjoys compared to what we're seeing right now with the Russians who are maybe operating under a pretty rigid system where when a commander is killed, the plan can fall apart pretty quickly. So I think also what Ben said on AARs, CTC rotations, we've benefited tremendously from that. And we've been able to bring a lot of that knowledge to our allies here in NATO. I think as we continue our forward presence here, there are a lot of American units right now working with NATO partners, working on both that kind of human interoperability and the technical interoperability that's needed to cooperate and succeed doing that really complicated combined arms operations that we've been talking about. We're getting better every day, but it's never complete. There's always more work to be done. So I think we can kind of get into some of the nuances of that here in the conversation ahead. But yeah, I think NATO as an alliance has made strides in terms of human and tactical, technical operability from my experience here in 2023 compared to what I saw in 2017 when I was a company commander here.
3: Obviously, NATO militaries are very professional, very proficient, and would not run into many of the same challenges uh, in terms of coordination, command and control. But it's important to re- reflect on the fact that this, when this war started, it was being fought across 2,000 kilometers of front. And if you lay down side by side the frontage of NATO units, if we were deploying in the way that we train, and you look at the forces available, then it's pretty clear that the existing forces in place would not actually be able to cover the frontage involved. And so then you are relying on re- mobilized reserves relying on local units, relying on irregular units, which means that some of the critical functions for stitching that together and enabling mission command is vital if that's going to work and if they're going to hold the line, which they can do, but it requires that to be thought through and trained beforehand. And so that's where things like irregular warfare capabilities, I think, become really, really important for just holding down flanks, frontages that your conventional force can't. The other thing I'd say is that people talk about the ammunition consumption rates and things being extraordinary. They're not, right? The Ukrainians and the Russians are using comparable levels of ammunition and equipment than was projected in most of our war games. In fact, in some ways, they've been a bit conservative on their artillery ammunition consumption. So we knew that this was the requirement. And yet we have hacked away our stockpiles and undercut a lot of our capabilities that way. You know, there are, I believe, four barrel machines in Europe. So, how many different howitzers can we actually recover barrels for? Because in every historical conflict, and it's certainly true in Ukraine, you fire howitzers enough that the barrels break. You completely ruin the bore. And if that doesn't happen, the breach goes. So, you know, when we talk about to our politicians about the state of readiness of our forces, I think we need to include in that and be open about the tail. And that includes the industrial base. Because if those things aren't lined up, then you can have the most professional forces in the world that they're not going to be able to maintain the defensive positions if they don't have ammunition. That's where I think NATO has some work to do, making sure that the industrial base is geared to be able to support the very professional and capable troops that it fields.
1: I think that's a terrific point that when we talk about readiness and also a deterrence, the logistical component of it, the tendency is sort of focused on systems and platforms, but could have a thousand tanks, but if you don't have fuel or ammunition, then they're all just monuments. So I think that probably is going to come more and more to the fore. I don't know how many plants we have in the U.S. I think Watervliet Arsenal there in New York is the only place that makes the cannon for our Paladin howitzers. There may be another place out there somewhere, but I'm pretty sure that's the only place that does it for us. So we don't have the depth right now But these are not charities. I mean, they employ thousands of people and they have supply chains that require money to buy all the stuff. So we've spent a year wringing our hands about ammunition consumption. And only just this last month, the Department of Defense actually write a check to pay for increasing ammunition procurement. So we've got to get serious about this. I think to answer your question, Kyle, the fact that we are integrated into allied formations, you know, where Ryan's at, you're surrounded by allies. I'd put that in a much more positive context. Yes, there are challenges in terms of secure communications, interoperability, that sort of thing. But the United States needs allies. We don't have enough capacity. And and so being effective at operating inside multinational formations is an advantage for us if we can work through those things that make it a bit of a challenge. I do worry that we don't have enough depth in certain things, redundancy. You lose a certain thing. You don't have another one you can automatically pull up. One of the great advantages that the U.S. Army has, of course, is our medical, our healthcare professionals. What a U.S. Army medic, an E-4 medic can do today compared to what they could do 20 years ago is staggering. Just think of what the contents of your first aid kit now to what I had, Lieutenant Hodges had, or even Colonel Hodges had. It's like, you know, fifth generation improvement. So this is a real benefit. I think the Russians are still using the same stuff that their grandfathers used in Stalingrad. And I think that's part of the reason soldiers fight so well is because they know that even if they get wounded severely, they probably are going to survive, given the quality of the evacuation system and the training and skill of medics in the very front end there. We are good at logistics. The 21st Theater Sustainment Command down the road here in Kaiser's I mean, they are good. They know how to do big industrial stuff. We just don't have enough. There's not enough transport. Just like I said, we don't have enough engineers. I do think one of our hallmarks of the U.S. military and most of our allies is the ability to learn, adapt. I'm pretty sure, Ryan, I won't speak for you, but I bet they're doing AERs after every exercise they're doing, after everything you do. What happened here? How do we fix that? We clearly do not have enough air defense. I was always envious of the Russians. It's like every echelon is wrapped or encased in air defense because they always knew that we would have air superiority plus attack aviation. And so they built in the capability to defend themselves. We don't have that. I mean, almost all of our Avenger units are in the National Guard. There's not much out there to to help us protect ourselves. And then finally, we don't have enough long-range precision fire. We don't have enough artillery. I mean, when you compare it to a Russian formation, how much they bring, we don't have the same numbers. I get it. Yes, precision and quality and all that. There's not enough.
3: One of the challenges that I've had in writing about this conflict is there are a lot of elements to it, which we obviously can't publicize yet. And when you start to add in those factors, there are major lessons learned that are missing at the moment. One day it will be possible, but I think people just have to have in their minds the fact that they don't yet know everything and that there's still a lot that they need to potentially factor in later and appreciate that those are currently unknowns. One of them is the medical picture. We can't talk about Ukrainian casualties because it is an OPSEC issue and there's various other considerations, but I would just put it out there that there is a huge amount to learn on the medical side and there are some really, really hard issues to overcome. And so for those officers who are working with Ukrainians, I would encourage them to dig into it because it's one of those areas where we've got a lot to learn and it's quite an invisible part of the current conflict. So this is
0: a great point to pivot the conversation from talking about the operational and tactical observations about large-scale combat operations in Ukraine to the topic of what are the implications for U.S. force posture in Europe, which is really in part a question on setting the conditions for successful deterrence. So before we get into what constitutes successful deterrence in Europe, given what we've learned from Ukraine, I'd like to provide some theoretical context to understand conventional deterrence. Ryan, you've written about this extensively what are the key assumptions behind conventional deterrence and how do they apply to the current situation in Europe? Thanks, Kyle.
2: Yeah, so for deterrence studies, we can kind of look at two distinct types of deterrence that are most written about, and that's deterrence by punishment, deterrence by denial. Punishment is more focused on imposing costs if deterrence fails, and that's a concept that's probably best associated with nuclear deterrence and mutually assured destruction. Whereas deterrence by denial is focused on kind of a defensive deterrence strategy that's looking to maximize capabilities that prevent a potential adversary from achieving their objectives at the outset, or at least making it so costly that it's, it's not worth pursuing. So within the conventional deterrence literature, it's more focused on that denial part of the overall deterrence breakdown. And recent works on conventional deterrence by denial are oftentimes looking at how do we assess capability? And there are a lot of measurement challenges inherent in that when it comes to qualitative and technical differences between equipment and personnel, some of which we've kind of talked about earlier. Something else that's kind of important for today's discussion is this distinction of extended deterrence. So where you know, the United States is providing our capability and credibility as a nation to reassure our allies and deter Russia. And part of that extended deterrence literature looks at something called tripwire deterrence, where you're looking at a small force that maybe doesn't have the capability to enact deterrence by denial. However, the risk of creating casualties among that force would lead to an escalation in the event of war, whereby the contributed nation you know, would be forced to enter the conflict if some of their troops are killed in that small tripwire force. And and tripwire deterrence has received quite a bit of attention in the last probably decade, especially following Russia's 2014 invasion of Ukraine and the initial NATO and U.S. response, both with Operation Atlantic Resolve and the EFP NATO battle groups in the Baltics and Poland that have now since expanded to the southeast of Europe as well. And, And that's kind of another important part of conventional deterrence literature.
3: I think I might follow up the theory and kind of bridge into the practice by just flagging that too many people talk about deterrence as something that you do rather than an effect that you have. And the effect of deterrence is cognitive. And the only thing that really matters is the perception and judgment of the person you are trying to affect, i.e. the adversary decision-maker. And so far too often we project what we, we're scared of, what you know we think would be significant onto the adversary. And Ukraine is a good example of that. We were running around going back and forth to Moscow, telling them how terrible sanctions would be because we wanted to believe that economic harm would deter people because that was convenient for us. You know, it meant that we didn't have to do lots of things that we found difficult or unpleasant. And because that's how we wanted the world to work. And, you know, I, I was involved in back channels before the war kicked off and, you know, no many colleagues who were engaged directly with the Russian government. And the message was absolutely consistent the whole way through from the Russian side, which is, hey, your sanctions, we just don't care. Right. And we didn't want to hear it. And so that's a really good example of where we projected something onto the adversary. And that's why our deterrence attempts failed which means that deterrence activity has to be intelligence-led or it's going to be ineffective. That whole question around after-action review and learning, how do we do AARs on deterrence activity at the moment? The only really relevant way is collection on the adversary and then assessment of how it shaped their thinking. And so that requires really close engagement between the military and the intelligence community.
1: For the last few years living here in Germany, I heard over and over and over Come on, Ben, the Russians are never going to attack. I mean, there was just an absolute disbelief. By the way, also in the United States, I mean, not just in Germany. I mean, people in multiple administrations just could not fathom the idea that in this century, Russia would actually attack. So uh, I think that complements a little bit of what Jack just said. What we're seeing now in Ukraine is what failed deterrence looks like. The Russians, I am sure, had assessed that we would not respond, nor would we stick together the way that we have. Because we failed to do anything after they invaded Georgia, we really did nothing after they invaded Ukraine in 2014 and annexed Crimea and supported the so-called separatists. We did nothing. I mean, there were sanctions, but nothing that changed behavior. You know, we had a huge debate about whether or not to give Javelin. Holy hell. I mean, that was the height of our strategic thinking about Ukraine for years. And then we did nothing after they jumped over President Obama's red line in Syria. So they were probably quite confident that they would be able to roll in and that we would not respond, that we would not stick together, as well as Ukraine not being able to fight well enough. And so this horrible, tragic situation, it's not our fault. It's their fault. I mean, they're the aggressor. They made the decision. They could end it today. But it's also a fact that they were pretty sure we were not going to do anything. And I think that contributed their decision making. So I agree 100 percent with Jack's comment there. Our ability to deter, of course, is always dependent on the nuclear umbrella that the U.S. provides. I spoke to a former senior Ukrainian official the other day. We were on a panel together, and he said he thinks that after this war, either nuclear weapons are going to be useless or everybody's going to want them. Because if the U.S. caves, which is right now, it feels a little bit like we're caving to Russia over the possibility of them using a tactical nuclear weapon, if we get too close to Crimea, then the lesson will be to everybody Only hell, the United States is terrified of a tactical nuclear weapon being employed. And so that will cause everybody to want to have one. And certainly, Pakistan, India, Israel, Iran, North Korea, as well as China and Russia will take a lesson from that. Or if we swat that aside, which is what we should do, because the chances are Russia is not going to use any sort of tactical nuclear weapon, if we swat it aside, then everybody else say, like, okay, the U.S. will continue to be that guarantor with a possibility of a nuclear conflict. The last thing I'd say is our exercises are such an important part of deterrence. And this is very expensive. So what we're doing with rotational forces like Ryan, all the hassle of deployment and coming over and then moving and doing stuff, that not only shows capability, but it also shows the willingness of the United States to spend whatever it costs to do this. That's how you can convey will. And we are willing to do that. And of course, no matter how expensive that is, that is much, much less expensive than when deterrence fails.
0: So when we look at deterrence theory, two key considerations are credibility and capability. And Jack and Ben, I think you were just discussing the credibility side of the deterrent package, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about the capability side. Do we have the footprint and equipment that we need to help Ukraine win the current war and also to prevent a Russian invasion of other countries, such as in the Baltics on the eastern flank? And do we need to reevaluate our deterrence posture? And one kind of specific question is, when we weigh the difference between rotational versus permanent forces, what are some of the calculations there that influence our deterrence posture?
2: I'll take the second half of your question, Kyle, and maybe talk about our current force posture in Europe, and I'll defer to Jack on the Ukraine piece of that. So I think currently, if you look at kind of the U.S. and NATO's force posture in Europe, and you're considering that relatively to what is in the Russian Western military district and how much they've had damaged and destroyed and what's currently committed in Ukraine from the Russian ground forces, I think it's safe to say that the U.S. and NATO currently are able to enact a deterrence by denial strategy here in Europe, or we're pretty close to that at least. We're no longer that tripwire force that maybe we were back in 2014, where we had pretty small fraction of troops that we have today. Both from the U.S. and NATO, we've put a lot more forward to the east, and that increased capability, I think, signals not only the alliance's unity, but also the credibility of the alliance's resolve to defend its eastern flank. So I'd say that that's a pretty significant shift over the last several years. And that's been underpinned you know, in the last year by the reinforcement into EUCOM of tens of thousands of American service members and the deployment of European NATO members east of reinforcements to their battle groups.
3: I would follow on from that by saying that if you look over the next two, three years, I am absolutely confident that NATO's deterrence posture is a posture of deterrence by denial and that it's credible. What concerns me is that we don't yet know how this war will end or how it will unfold. And the Russians could come out of it with a militarized society, a mobilized defense industry, a determination to rebuild their military. They've broken all of their diplomatic links. So one of the very few tools of diplomacy they have is coercion. And if we end up simultaneously in a position where the US is seeing an escalation in the Indo-Pacific, not to conflict, but, you know, where that's becoming a really significant draw on things like logistics capability and enablement, then NATO forces start to look a lot more hollow as they are currently constituted. And, you know, I think the the review of NATO's deterrence posture is going to be a bit more honest this time around because people are going to ask the questions down the echelon. And what we will see is the evaporation of a lot of phantom echelons from all that's things that couldn't actually be force generated. Now, as I say, right now, what's left is probably sufficient. But if we don't make the investments, particularly in Europe today, to make sure that European militaries can stand on their own two feet and be net contributors rather than dependents on each other then we could be in a pretty difficult position, I think, towards the end of the decade. I hope that's not the case, but it's one of those things where politicians shouldn't think that they can take risk on this if they don't want to rue that decision down the road. And, you know, we're already seeing the Germans walk back on some of their spending commitments that they made last year as a good example of where people think they are safer than they are, because they don't appreciate the lead times in fixing some of the capability gaps in terms of depth of capability that we need to resolve. So I'm comfortable now, but not necessarily assured into the future. Just one very brief point in addition on the Ukrainian side, lots of Ukrainian colonels and and general officers were trained in the Soviet Union. And even after that, worked very closely with the Russian military for a long time. And so they, they look at things in a similar way. One of the very consistent things that I've run into working with the Ukrainian military is that they don't count light infantry for much. They just don't look at it on an ORBAT and see it as a capable unit of action. Now, in NATO, we see that, certainly in the British military, we see light infantry as having huge utility. But it comes back to that point that what we think is militarily capable is not necessarily what is credible from a deterrence point of view, because it might not be what the other side's counting. And when we talk about the Russians, they count mechanized and armored units. And so we need to resolve that balance between, on the one hand, how do we want to fight and what do we think is best versus how we message that to convince the other side that that force is actually capable of undermining what they might plan to do.
1: So rotational versus permanent. I know that the commander of forces command hated what I was doing when I was in U.S. Army Europe, but I love rotational forces. Because when units like Ryan's would show up, we would ride them hard from start to finish. I could get more out of them in a six or nine month period than I could even our own units that were stationed here. Because normal cycle of life of a unit, wherever it is, black, gold, white cycle, whatever cycle you have. So the great second Striker Cavalry Regiment, I couldn't keep that regiment in the field the whole time for obvious reasons. But when the old 1st Brigade Combat Team of 1st Cavalry Division comes over, that we rode the hell out of them because they were on a deployment. And our mission was to make 30,000 look and feel like 300,000. You know, back when Lieutenant Hodges was astride guarding Europe's northern flank, there were almost 300,000 troops. And the mission was to deter the Soviet Union, assure our allies, and protect America's strategic interests. And as of 2015, 16, 17, we had 30,000 soldiers, U.S. Army, and the mission was to deter Russia, assure allies, and protect their strategic interests. So we had to create the effect of 30,000 that would have the effect of 300,000. So that means they had to be everywhere. And so a company commander would typically be the senior officer in a country. I mean, the Minister of Defense would know Ryan by first name, and they were interacting with international press and on and on and on and that was economy of force big time. But with rotational forces, you could do that. And I also like the fact that not only were they more visible, but it also was increasing the number of U.S. soldiers, officers, NCOs that had a European experience. You know, they used to be, you know, half the army was over here, so everybody rotated through Europe over the course of a career. Now, of course, it's a fraction. And so I I wanted to get as many captains and majors and colonels familiar with working in the Baltics, in Germany, moving on rail and that sort of thing. And then, of course, the other benefit is practicing the deployment so that not just Bremerhaven or Antwerp or Rotterdam or Gdansk or all the other ports that we use, that they had to relearn how to unload an Abrams, but also that Beaumont. The fort to port part of this deployment also had to be exercised on a regular basis. When it comes to Ford, I guess what I'm saying, I, I want to have it both ways. I like rotational, but also some things you have to have, you need to have here permanently. And I'm talking about the enablers, you know, the Kamo guys, the Loggies, the air and missile defense. That's what should constitute the bulk of US Army Europe, is all this, the enablers so that when the great 18 calf shows up, I mean, they're moving through to where they got to fight. And so I'm a little uncomfortable with the density of our enablers. And of course, you all know, 50% of the Army's logisticians and 70% of our engineers are in the reserve component. I'm not against that, but that means you got to have access. And that's also expensive.
0: I was just waiting for Ryan to say, yes, I am being ridden too hard here by the general officer. Uh,
1: No, not at all, Ben. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Loving loving every minute of it. (laughs)
0: I'm going to pivot us to some of our closing questions. And the first one is, you know, we've talked a lot about force posture and deterrence and large-scale combat operations in the European theater. I'm curious about the kind of external validity of these lessons in other theaters and what should the Army modernization and force design priorities be in preparing for large-scale combat operations in the future?
2: I think one important lesson I've taken away from the last year and how the U.S. Army and the U.S. Defense Department responded was a concept that Ben actually wrote about and that I also kind of followed up on in the Brookings papers was deterrence by rapid reinforcement. right? So if we are not going to have the capability needed in the long term, going back to Jack's earlier point, that the situation is probably not tenable where we're able to continuously enact deterrence by denial in Europe for the indefinite future. If that's the case and we're back to kind of more of a tripwire force, We have to be able to rapidly reinforce to quickly reestablish deterrence and to prevent an adversary, prevent Russia from taking advantage of a moment of vulnerability. And so I think, you know, the U.S. Army over the last year learned some really important lessons about deterrence by rapid reinforcement. And shortly after the invasion on February 24th of 22, you know, the Army, within a month to two months, we had two additional armor brigade combat teams in Europe, which is a pretty incredible feat one of which went through the process of drawing the APS fleet and fueling that, the other one coming from home station with all their equipment. And so getting an armored division on the continent in such a short period of time is really impressive, not to mention the 82nd Airborne, the uh, GRF, the headquarters, the 18th Airborne Corps headquarters, all rapidly moving and establishing mission command was very impressive to watch. And at the same time, our NATO allies, the VJTF and the NATO response force, enacting those systems. So I think there are a lot of important lessons learned and shortcomings identified that we can now work on in the coming years.
3: I think one of the biggest ones ties back to a point that General Ben made about the training that was set up with the Ukrainian military, and that is theater setting. Right? and the need to engage long before conflict to make sure that those states that are vulnerable to aggression, our friends and our allies and our partners around the world, are able to maximize their own security. And so when we look in an Indo-Pacific context where there's a much less formal alliance structure to a number of the problem sets, how do we make sure that we are appropriately setting the theater so that we don't cede so much ground before it even starts? That we're then facing, uh, you know, impossible challenges on day one and lose the first battle, even if we succeed in the war, you know, because I think another thing that definitely follows on to, to lessons for other theatres is that you can have a great plan for mobilisation and riding in and retaking ground and so forth, but it's always easier just to win the first battle, and the costs of losing that first battle are pretty severe. So. The significance of first-mover advantage, I think, is something that that carries over into other theatres.
1: Two things from my side, Kyle. First, I personally grossly overestimated Russian capability. And I've been asked several times, like, how would you get it so wrong? Especially since I was a commander of U.S. Army Europe and then commander of NATO Land Command before that, where I was staring right at it. How was I so wrong? I was wrong because I focused on Russian modernization efforts and all the stuff that they were deploying. And what I failed to anticipate or appreciate was the depth of corruption inside the Ministry of Defense and the impact that had on so many things from accurate numbers to quality of new stuff. And then I also failed to notice that even though Russia had invaded three different countries or had been fighting in Africa, Syria, Georgia, and Ukraine, it actually was a very tiny part of their military that was doing all that, that the vast majority of the Russian military never set foot outside of Russia part by law, part by design. And so they didn't have operational experience on logistics or doing all the things that they're having to do right now. I miss that. And then also, of course, their exercises. We never were given or had the transparency of what they were doing. And so we know now that most of their exercises are really big, giant demonstrations, not something where you train to the point of failure like at the NTC or the JMRC. So When I look at the Indo Pacific region, I'm I'm not an expert on this region that you'll spot immediately, but all I hear about is how many ships the PLA Navy has. That's bigger than the U.S. Navy. But I think professionals know that having a lot of ships does not equal a great Navy. And what do we know about corruption inside the PLA? I think it is probably rampant. What do we know about the warfighting capabilities of the Chinese equivalent of some sort of a strike group? I mean, I'm sure that. In Hawaii, they're sitting there watching Chinese exercises, but I don't have a sense for how good they are if they actually got into a conflict with the Royal Navy or the U.S. Navy. The second big thing is there's a lot of stuff that's working real well right now, and specifically what the 18th Airborne Corps and UCOM and U.S. Army Europe did to create this enormous logistics hub in Poland where all this stuff is coming and then it is flying through. That's incredible. There's no book, no doctrinal manual or course that teaches you how to do that. It was dynamic leadership by somebody like C.D. Donahue, but also the full weight of the U.S. Department of Defense and allies saying, we're going to make this work and then letting them sort it out. And I talked to two German logistics officers who had the chance to go work there for a couple of weeks. I talked to them afterwards and I said, so what do you think? They're like, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this. And it was specifically the thing that struck them is how Trucks were being cross-loaded with missiles, hand grenades, mortar rounds, and you know MREs. I mean, it was, things were being packed on there to keep it going. They said, you know, in, in the Bundeswehr, you would never be able to mix loads like that. And I said, huh, at Fort Campbell, you would never be allowed to mix a load like that either. My point is, let's institutionalize the stuff that's being done now. If it's okay now, when it really counts, then we should be practicing that. Don't go back to things that are wrapped in multiple layers of, let's protect us from ourselves with regulations that limit our effectiveness.
0: And that's a good note to pivot to our closing remarks. My final question is, what advice would you give to military leaders at all levels, from the tactical to strategic, and national security analysts and researchers preparing for future large-scale combat operations based on the current war in Ukraine? And Ryan, we'll start with you.
2: Yeah, I guess my advice would maybe be to tactical leaders who are potentially going to be coming into the theater for rotation, maybe some recent SOCH graduates, West Point graduates, ROTC graduates. So I just say that the importance of you know having that grounding and good, rigorous training is going to set you up for success. And then when you get here, how are you sharing those lessons that you've learned, You know, whether it's at Fort Benning or Fort Sill, Fort Lee? How are you sharing those lessons with your NATO allies? You know, we just recently did a combined arms breach LPD, where we brought in our counterparts from the German-led EFP battle group here in Lithuania and the Lithuanian Army Brigade that we're affiliated with, the Griffin Brigade, and we hosted them for an afternoon and we did a combined arms breach with them using all of our equipment, showing them how we as a battalion would fight. What we came away with is like, next, we're going to do it with that group of countries. And, you know, there'll be a U.S. breach company. There'll be a German support by fire company. There'll be a Lithuanian assault company when we do that next live fire. So how do you enact that same type of combined arms team at a multinational level and, and thinking creatively about how to do that under rotation?
3: I think that the thing I would say is that we need to stop putting command and control together they are two quite different functions and they require slightly different processes and the questions that i would you know always hope that a commander has in their mind at any echelon is number 1 what can i do to help my subordinates achieve their objective and number 2 is what would my subordinate do if i wasn't around and i think that second question very quickly triages where you need to actually exercise control and where your command Will enable them to be effective. I've been on plenty of exercises where I've seen, because of the fidelity of picture that senior officers get now of the battlefield, they exercise control over the wrong things. And if they ask that question, does this help my subordinate? the answer would be no, very clearly no. So, the, those two things like something we've seen absolutely in Ukraine is that when higher echelons reinforce lower echelons, they achieve much more effect than when they try and grip an echelon that's in contact. And the second one is that, you know, mission command is really critical. So we just need to double down on that.
1: So for me, two things i want to mention here at the end, at every level, but especially for the, you know, at the, at the top level, we have got to get clarity of mission. What's the end state? I mean, we are still deterring ourselves because the administration, which has done a fantastic job on so many things, can't bring themselves to say, we want Ukraine to win. We get things like, we're in it for as long as it takes, whatever the hell that means or we don't want Ukraine to lose, or we want Russia to lose, or it's going to be a long war. You have to have clarity. If you do get clarity, then all these decisions about what type of weapons to provide or how we're going to do it, that will happen. But because we're still deterring ourselves and we don't have clarity of end state, then I think it causes us to want to meander a little bit, which only prolongs this conflict. And by the way, everybody here knows, you know, from your training since your source of commission was the troop leading procedure. You know, and part of that is you come up with a restated mission. You've received your mission and then you say, okay, I think this is what you're telling me to do. I'm sure that the chairman has said that to the SECDEF and to the president, but we still are where we are. The other thing is be a learning organization. The best units I ever saw, the best organizations I ever saw were learning organizations. They had the ability to learn, to correct, to grow from every experience. You know, you should be instant execution for anybody that says, well, this is how we've always done it here, right? Get rid of that because you've got to be able to adapt and learn and have a culture in your institution that not only encourages that, but expects that.
0: Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, Major Ryan Van Wee, and Dr. Jack Watling. Thank you for joining the Social Science of War podcast. This has been an exceptionally interesting conversation.
1: What a privilege to listen to Ryan and Jack and to do this with you, Kyle. Thank you very much.
3: Yeah,
2: thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate the
1: discussion.
3: Thanks for bringing us together. The last time I saw you, Ben, was in the library at Brucie, which, given that it's been closed since pre-COVID, means it was probably 2019, and you were describing the value of cigars to your command decision-making in Afghanistan. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's very good to be with you again.
0: Thank you for listening to Season 1, Episode 8 of the Social Science of War podcast, brought to you by the Social Sciences Department at West Point. We release a new episode every two weeks. Future episodes will examine implications of the politicization of the Army and a conversation with the Chief of Staff of the Army about multi-domain operations. If you like today's episode, please like and leave a positive comment on your favorite podcast platform and share the social science of war with other scholars and Army professionals. This really makes a big difference by helping drive others with similar interests to the conversation. And one last note, what you heard today were the views of the participants and do not represent those of West Point, the Army, or any agency of the U.S. government. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.